Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Nikki Weldon. Hi Nikki, how's things? Hi Kieran, yeah, all good. Well, as good as it can be in 2020. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm alright, thanks. It's really good to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. Um, uh, how, Thank you for asking me. How have you found lockdown so far? Uh, lockdown's been a weird one for me because touch wood I've still been working which has been brilliant apart from periods of furlough I had uh, two jobs going in so I was still teaching at the Royal Exchange teaching the young company there whilst also my part time role as associate director at Grey Eye head of new writing so I think I did that thing when we first went into lockdown on my birthday of like going like let's start teaching on zoom like i'd never heard yeah. of zoom till march the 16th and then march the 17th we were using it um and just like let's do this let's do that that sort of like adrenaline rush of we're mm. going to get through this we're going to keep making work throughout it so start of lockdown i'd say from like march through till august i made a couple of uh, shows uh one with the elders and the young company at the royal exchange we were supposed to, we we just cast it and we would start going into uh, an R&D phase. Uh, I was working with the writer Testament, uh, right. who's a hip-hop artist, uh, and uh, we were going to be working with the elders and the young company to make a piece of uh, uh, site-specific promenade piece for the Royal Exchange in their portable theatre, The Den. We were going to make one around music, what does music mean to people and the idea of everyone being at a festival you know, lots of people together in an enclosed space, but lockdown happens, we couldn't do that, and the Royal Exchange were really keen to keep that project going. So we turned online, and we started having those rehearsals on Zoom, started creating characters, still had kind of music at the the Mm. heart of it, but we ended up making a five-episode drama, really, uh, all through Zoom. Uh, We had elements of it being like a radio drama yeah um yeah like five 15 minute episodes which and you add it all together that's kind of like a feature film length yeah um so that was the first big project and then also in august i devised a piece again on this infamous thing called zoom there are other things available by the way um and we we made a promenade piece using different breakout spaces okay. it's called double m double x which is 2020 in roman numerals and uh, we looked at the idea of cancel culture. You know, like right. when you cancel someone out of your life for something yeah. you've done. 
So we did that. And then also with Grey Eye, I was doing the Crips Without Constraints part one, which was monologues written mm. by deaf and disabled writers, performed by deaf and disabled performers. And they went out. So up until August, lockdown was like really busy. And then I had some time off on furlough. And I think adrenaline just left me. Yeah. So from about September onwards, it's been really hard to find my creative mojo. Mm. Um, I've started doing like a little six-week writer's course for me, uh, oh, okay. just to keep learning, which is quite fun, which I've got a five-minute piece I've got to submit tonight, so I need to get and do my homework, finish that off and get mm. that in. Um, but otherwise, it's been... Lockdown, it's, it's been a weird one. Mm. I'm shielding... Right. Uh, have yeah hardly been out been to visit family in Gloucestershire that's about it but basically just stayed in Manchester most of it and not seen many people in the flesh um, so I think work has got me through Yeah. but you know yeah it's it's a weird one I can't I've lost track of what part of the year we're in because usually when you're off doing different projects mm. or shows, you remember where you were at a certain time by a project or a show. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that. But So yeah. for 2020, it's like, where were you when you made this project? I was at home on the computer. Oh, and, you know, yeah. and I'm really lucky that I've still been able to work. Um, but there's nothing, you know, you know, we can still make stuff happen, but there's nothing better than being in a room is there with other people. No, and, and you know, we can, we can only hope that we'll be able to do that at some yeah. point soon. It's yeah. not it's not the same. It's definitely not no. the same. I, I did a bit of outdoor work for New Earth Signal Fires the other weekend. And right. That was lovely because that was outdoors. I could actually be with actors and the stage yeah. manager and, that was like, and the, and the yeah. writers and that was fantastic. Um, and so that was like, oh, I'll just top up on this little bit of fun of being outside because yeah i need that just to push me through the next probably six mm, months again yeah well yeah um what i wanted to ask you first was what i asked the first question i asked, I asked all my guests is how did you first get interested in theater mm, good question how did I first get interested in theatre? Excuse me. <clears throat> I ate a sneaky bit of popcorn, didn't I, before I started, and now I feel like it's stuck in my throat. Oh, um, no. So, how did I get into theatre? Looking back, I was probably always into theatre. Like, as a kid, me and my sister, we'd watch Annie and Oliver, <laughs> and then we would reenact them out. Yeah. Uh, I was Annie, she'd be Molly, and Oliver, I'd be... She'd be Oliver, I'd be the Artful Dodger. And we used to love doing that. And also, like, putting on shows with my cousins for, like, our family at Christmas time, anyone's birthday. Basically, any time there was a family get-together, I'd, like, mock up a script, my A4 pieces of paper with my biro, write, write little scripts, and we'd, we'd act them out. Um, so I think that, that showed a sort of potential love for directing as well as acting and yeah. writing, maybe. Um and then I didn't. I wasn't able to go to like youth theatre or young company growing up in Gloucestershire because being a disabled kid, I got told that um, the the youth theatres they weren't accessible to me. They didn't know how to work with a disabled child, so I never went. But I found a sort of release through um, Girl Guides. Right. Uh, 
like doing your entertainer's badge, putting on shows. And and um, that and that was accessible and inclusive, yeah, was it? Yeah, they made it completely accessible. Um, you know, sitting around the campfire when we went out camping. Uh, all of that, I loved it. Um, and then, you know, and I think that's where I realised that was something I wanted to pursue. And so I studied theatre studies at A level. Right. That that really yeah pushed pushed that passion like made the fire stronger in my belly. I was going to be an educational psychologist. Right. Get that? I was like, did work experience in that. I was looking at doing psychology and have to do this post grad and la la la. And then I just like got hooked on drama and was like, no no no, this is what I'm going to do. Wait, and, uh, yeah. Were the people around you kind of supported, supportive of that? Yeah, my mum and dad were, and my mum was like, why don't you do English alongside it, just just in case. I still don't know what you do English for, you know, maybe teaching. Um, no offence to anyone that did an English degree. Um, but yeah, and my theatre studies teacher, they were helping me with drama school auditions. But mm. then, it, you know, it became apparent with drama school auditions, Mm, you don't really have the facilities, there's not really much access. Why would you want to spend three years training when there's not many opportunities? So I kind of hit that one on the head and I ended up studying theatre and media drama at University of Glamorgan before it was in the mm-hmm. centre of Cardiff, you know, when it was up so, so it was, in the forest. So it wasn't where I went, it was the Trufaris campus. Trufaris campus, yeah. Right. Were you in the posh atrium bit? I was, yeah. Mm, no. It's lovely, and you make you feel, it was a fantastic building, but we were on the script writing course, so we just used the little classroom, so it didn't let us use the rehearsal spaces that much. Mm. But, so how was your time at the University of Glamorgan? It was brilliant, I loved it. I mean, I think I chose the worst university to go if you're a wheelchair user. I mean, it is on the side of a Welsh Valley, isn't it? Let's yeah. be fair. Uh, so at that point, I swiftly realised I was going to need a power chair rather than a manual chair to get round. Um, but I had a fantastic time. It was first time moving away from home as a disabled person, uh, you know, being able to have personal assistance to help you get round, access workers. And really, like, I think finding out that what interested me in making theatre was something with a political edge. Yeah. I created a piece of work in my first year called Three Foot Off The Ground that ended up going to the Edinburgh Fringe a year later. Um, Yeah, and just... And also the people you meet, isn't it? Those lecturers that kind of influence you. Um, And just being at uni and getting drunk and going out with your mates and exploring Cardiff as the closest city. And, yeah, all of that. So it's, it's, it was great. I'm, sorry, go on. It's more than just a course, isn't it? It's a whole yeah. experience, and you've got to have that whole experience. Yeah, you've got to have it. Um, and I also think, like, um, with my course, we did a little bit of everything. So, like, mm. radio, TV, sort of production side as well, and stage management, and whatever. And writing, directing, yeah. uh, performance. And it was in association with the Royal Welsh. Um, and it was great. I kind of think sometimes I wanted a bit more. I felt like I okay. was dipping my toe into too much stuff. But it was great to have that, you know, overall experience and, and understanding of different departments. Uh, and do you feel that it, 
give you a, a good enough platform after graduating to know this is how I get into the industry? Did it kind of give you a pathway? Um, I think so. I think it gave me confidence more than anything. Right. Um, I still came out of that going, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I know I want to work in theatre. I think maybe theatre or radio were the two things, passions that I had when I came out. Um, yeah, but I think as a person, it had given me that chance to live independently yeah. uh, and gain confidence. Um, yeah, and to take take risks, I suppose. Yeah. Definitely. And how how kind of easy or difficult did you find it to break into the industry after graduating? After graduating, I was unemployed for a couple of months. Um, and then my mum saw an advert in the stage newspaper that the Arts Council had some apprenticeships had one apprenticeship at the Nuffield Theatre in Southampton for an education stage manager. Right. Uh, so I thought I've done a bit of stage management work at uni and also for a friend of mine called Mark German, who I now believe has many uh, stage know, schools yeah. and their agency in the whole of South Wales. You know, well done, Mark. Um, so I had done a bit of stage management on one of his um, stage school shows, Blood Brothers it was, oh. at Ponte Dowie, I think. Ponte Dowie Art Centre. Yeah, I think it was Ponte Dowie Art Centre. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure it was. And so, um, yeah, I, I thought, well, why not give it a go? And I went for this interview in Southampton, and then, yeah, I ended up getting the job. So I was in Southampton. My apprenticeship was a year and a half. Right. I stayed on for a year after that, so two and a half years down there. And that was brilliant. I'd say that was the best training ever because I was uh, I was a stage manager on tour. I was driving a three and a half ton Mercedes Sprinter van with three actors. We were doing two shows in rep, so we had two sets in the back. We right. started off doing just an education tour, so going into schools, you know, got to be at the school for eight o'clock in the morning, do the hour and a half get in do a show, pack up, have a bit of lunch on the road, go to the next school, same thing, finish, be home by half four, watch Countdown when it used to be on later, uh, have a meal, be in bed by eight, winner. Yeah. Um, yeah, did that, and then it grew to then taking some of those shows to like uh, village halls, smaller venues, yeah. um, and all over the country, so we weren't just going around Hampshire, we ended up, you know, I think going up to sort of like County Durham, or yeah. all over. And there was one time where we did Bill's New Frock adaptation of it, and we did it on the set of the South Pacific at the right. National Theatre on the Olivier stage. And I was playing, I was like, I was the stage manager, but I had to dress like a lollipop lady and bang percussion instruments. Right. Uh, that was quite mega. Um, <laughs> so it was like out on tour, yeah. but then at Christmas, the touring company were brought in to be part of the main house show. Panto, well, Christmas show. So I learn assistant stage manager doing props. I also learn how to be on the book, be a DSM. Uh, I've got a real understanding of all the different layers, its levels of stage management. I, our office, uh, the education office was front of house. So I got to understand all of those offices like marketing, communications, box office have chats with the artistic director the chief executive so i really got to understand how a venue worked um and that i 
think that's really gone on to help inform my work both as an actor and yeah. now as a director. Uh, and did you enjoy the touring aspect of it as well? I did, it was really tiring. Like, like we had our stage manager, who was the one above me, I loved him dearly, but everything was like, felt like everything was made out of lead. Like, right. let's have a bit more metal in here. No, no more. Just give me, give me something light. Uh, uh, but yeah, it. I think I just it did get tiring. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think by the time I finished after two and a half years of it, I was I was quite physically tired. But also I still had this burning desire that I wanted to act. Yeah. And uh, that kind of brings me on to my next point. Although it's a little bit further down the line, I want to talk about um, you played the leading role of Miranda in the London 2012 Paralympic Opening Ceremony. How did that come about, first of all? And what was that experience like? Um, yeah, it was all quite surreal how it happened, landing the role of Miranda. So, you know, finishing as a stage manager, fast forward on another 10 years. Um, and yeah, I was was working as an actor at the time. I was in the ceremony originally as a one of the wheelchair dancers. Right. Uh, so there was, I think you had the volunteer cast, I can't remember how many were in there, but then there were like nearly 80 professional deaf and disabled performers. So. I was going to be one of those, I was in my power wheelchair and there's a moment during the opening song, um, Umbrella, where, um, not diversity, the other one that didn't make it through from Britain's Got Talent, they are going around on their uh, roller skates and uh, me and some other wheelchair users, we were going to do fancy dancing with them and some of my mates were doing that. Yeah. and then there were other sections I was going to be in. And that, that was the thing. When when you're there as a dancer, professional or volunteer, you don't know the ceremony. You only know the section that you're in. Oh, right. So I knew I was in Umbrella. I knew I was in Gravity. Uh, I knew, and then I knew I was going to be in uh, I Am What I Am. And that was about it. So I'd started going to rehearsals, I think it was about the April, May time, over to three meals, like once, twice a week. You go for like three, four hours rehearsal and in these routines. Yeah. And then um, July, I remember it quite clearly actually, because because we were involved in the Paralympics opening, we Mm. got tickets to go to the dress rehearsal of the Olympic opening. Okay. And I just been to the dress rehearsal of that and the next day I was over at Three Mills rehearsing I Am What I Am and uh, I got asked if I would audition for the main part. I was like, yeah, right, why not? So I had to, a couple of days later I came in and I had to do a little bit to camera um, and then thought nothing of it and then I had a phone call to say, can you come back the next day? We want to see what you like in a harness. So I was like, oh, okay, well, even if I don't get it, I've had a go at, like, flying. Had you so, done that before? No, never, never. Um, so I went in. They, they were really good. Like, I've got hip replacements, knee replacements, so I was like, 
this isn't going to like dislocate my hip, is it? And they were like, no, 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 it's cool. Right. We'll put this type of harness on you. You'll be really safe. Whatever, any pain, you let us know. So they spent time really taking me through it. And as soon as I got up in the air, I loved it. Like being able to do roly polies, which I can't do down on the floor. <laughs> and it's something like as a kid, I was like, I always wanted to do a roly poly. Yeah. So being able to do like forward rolls, backward rolls, they were like pulling me across on a pulley so it looked like I was walking across in the air. And I came down, I was absolutely buzzing. And I was like, you know, if I don't get it, I've had a fantastic time. Yeah. And I remember I got in the car and I drove from East London over to Cardiff because my friend was in hospital at the time in Cardiff. And I just pulled up into the into the hospital car park and my phone went and it was the casting director and she said, you've got the role of Miranda, you start rehearsals on Monday morning. Oh. And this was like Thursday. Wow. And I'm not, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. So of course I told my friend that was in <laughs> hospital. Uh, and I went and stayed with a friend on the mm. bay and we had champagne that night. Um, and then I had to go into drive back to London the next day and go into my normal, my regular dancer rehearsal, not say a word. Uh, but some of the other people knew, like the right. um, the dance captains knew I wasn't going to be around. Um, and then yeah, started rehearsals as Miranda on Monday, and it was literally three weeks before the ceremony. So it was a week of being in the office where they do the storyboard um, pictures. So you have yeah. a guy who, and I've got one on my walls, I'm looking at it now, who does the whole ceremony as little uh, cartoon pictures. Okay. And so uh, you sit with the, the design in front of you. So there's like Bradley and Jenny, the directors, uh, the set designer, costume designer, they're all there. And they walk through the ceremony bit by bit using little plasticine models whilst this guy does the comic strip um and it was like during one of those meetings they went oh yeah and this is where uh stephen hawking will be and of course i didn't know any of this because i was never didn't know this. and i'm like right okay yeah and this is where uh ian comes out and i said ian yeah 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 ian mckellen Oh, okay, here we go. Yeah, right. Thanks for letting me know that. So it was like, for me, it was bit by bit I started right. to find out what was going to happen. Um, and so you had, you know, you had those sort of storyboard meetings, plus then going and doing your harness training, uh, and then learning dance routines, um, and working out, like, as Miranda, I was a tiny, tiny part in a massive machine. So there'll be points where, like, we were rehearsing out in Dagenham in the old um, Ford factory car park. Yeah. And I would just have to, like, go up a tower and watch the routines and work out where I was going to be and how was I going to respond to the dancers. So a lot of it felt like I just had to be really reactive to what was going on around me. Uh, as an actor... Oh. As an actor, yeah. How, how, um, how was it kind of on that scale? Did you feel that you were able to take take direction in the same way as you would? Yeah, yeah I mean, I wasn't given much direction. Right. They were so busy focusing on the big stuff around me. And it wasn't until we did, about a week before the ceremony, we moved into the stadium because the Olympics had finished, we were allowed in. Yeah. And then the stadium kind of became ours for 10 days. And, you know, 
So there was lo loads of changes made. Like you get into the stadium and there was one time, you know at the start of the ceremony, I'm seen uh, sat in a wheelchair floating on top of the world. Yeah. Well, three days before the ceremony, that wheelchair was a narrow plank of wood. And ah. they were like, we're just going to try you on this. So imagine like a, a wooden swing, yeah? Like a really narrow oh, bit of wood. That's... I think it was a bit of wood they used for one of the Mary Poppins flying out in the Olympics. So I sat on this thin strip of wood, harnessed in. Uh, had a walk, what did I have? A walking stick umbrella, magnifying glass, trying to hold all that without dropping it. Yeah. They took me up 25 metres. I was like, yeah, fine. Uh, and then they were like, no, I don't think it looks right as I'm like 25 metres in the air. <laughs> um, so then I came down and the next day there was this wheelchair for me to sit in, which I felt a lot safer than yeah, just a small plank of wood. Um, but it wasn't until we did a dress rehearsal on the Monday that the TV cameras, I think, come in to just check angles and yeah. do bits. That then I got direction off the directors of how I needed to respond. But you also got each section had its own uh, dance captain, like okay. head choreographer. Right. And they were sat up in the control box, and um, we all had in ear uh, headphones and a little transmitter so uh you i was given instructions through that during the entire ceremony i remember the best one was it's in the water scene and i think it's just before i fly up to see dave tool um yeah. one of the ones i was given was and turn to your right and hail the whale that meant I had to turn to my right and there was the whale and I had to like not wave but kind of be like oh hello whale um, so you have all that and but mm. I wasn't told these instructions I was kind of really like learning them as I went in a couple of the rehearsals and we didn't have many full like no. rehearsal rehearsals I think we had like one dress rehearsal and then into it on the Wednesday night did you feel prepared or I bet you were nervous really nervous like I remember we were given a pep talk like us and the aerial team before we went out and Phil um, head of aerial just went you know if there's one thing you need to do him and Tina both said just take a moment to relax yeah. tonight and take the moment in because you're never going to have this again we're never it's not like we can go out and repeat it no. so just make sure you have that moment where you just think yeah I'm here um, and there's moments where I wish we had, could go back and do it again because I'd do mm. a better job, you know. You're always critical of yourself, aren't you, when you watch well, yourself Yeah, it's similar with everything, I think. But it's an amazing moment of history to be part of. But I'm going to move on slightly. Um, I want to ask you how you formed Toucan Theatre Company. Um, what was your aim when you started and how important was it for you to be making your own work at this point? So I formed, so yeah, Toucan Theatre Company, we formed it in 2014 with my friends Louise and Becky back in Gloucestershire and we were keen to form a company because uh, the negativity we had from some theatres in Gloucestershire, uh, the negativity we had been when we were young, not being able to access youth theatre. 
So we decided to set it up, and part of that aim was to start a, a integrated youth theatre. Right. Which we still going. Uh, I mean, Lou and Becky are running it now. I'm no longer in Gloucestershire, um, but we have over twenty five young people that meet every Monday night. Uh, and you know disabled non-disabled uh, and over through the pandemic they've made brilliant work on zoom as well so yeah that started in 2014 we did a summer school for young people started youth theatre uh, we did uh, we've done a schools tour called freak show which was a way to kind of teach young people about the social model of disability uh, and then I directed a piece called Toucan Toucan which is based on the kids book by David McKee about how okay. tokens get their name and their colour. And that was with uh, three fantastic actors, uh, Chloe Phillips or Chloe Clark, who is of Elbow Room. Uh, Chloe Phillips. Yeah. Cardiff. Yeah. yeah Chloe Phillips. Brooks. And also uh, John Kidd, who works a lot with hygiene. Oh, I knew John. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, so, you know, it was that thing of creative, the aesthetics of creative access. So... We uh, made sure we had a creative audio description and the actors uh, used sign supported English throughout. So uh, it was a creatively accessible show mm. uh, for, for you know young ones through to however. And that toured libraries around Gloucestershire. It's also done the Cheltenham Literature Festival and a little festival in Bristol as well. So and yeah, it was a joy. Was that the first time that you'd implemented integrated access into performance no i because uh with my link with gray eye going back uh, yeah. many many years it's always been there in my head so like shows i've made with gray eye have always had integrated access also i made work with kazoo theater company uh working alongside daryl beaton and we would integrate as much access as we could uh i'd say it was my first yeah, my first piece of work as a director on my own, mm. integrating it. Uh, so I was really proud of proud of that show. Um, yeah, and Toucan continues in Gloucestershire, which is great. That's fantastic. Um, and um, how, how did you get interested in directing and what is your process? Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. So how did I get interested in directing? Um, I had never thought of it until someone said to me, you you should be a director. Right. And I was like, nah, can't be a director. I'm not clever enough. I'm not academic enough. Because I think in your head, you always think the directors have been to Oxford or Cambridge um, and have studied and read every book, theatre book there is known to be written. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd already started assisting Daryl at Kazoom, Jenny a little bit at Grey Eye, particularly yeah. on outdoor work. And then, uh, I, then I, I'm just trying to think of the timeline, yeah, then I ended up assisting Jenny Seeley from Grey Eye on a production of Blood Wedding when we yeah. were rehearsing in Dundee and that toured. And I, I just really enjoyed it. And I loved like being the director, putting the piece into the theatre when it went on tour. Uh, being able to direct some Jenny was generous and gave me a couple of scenes to direct um, and I really loved it and I think that was then I was like yeah let's go on and I did Toucan Toucan um, and then Jenny asked me again to her sister on 
another Lorca, the House of Bernardo Alba at the Royal Exchange, which made my link to up here. Uh, then I was associate director on Tommy, the Ramps on the Moon tour. Yeah. And then I got a, a little job assisting Rufus Norris at the National Theatre on a wow. production of Mosquitoes, which had Lily Coleman in it. So, yeah, and then I got the role as resident assistant director up at the Royal Exchange on the uh, Regional Theatre Young Director Scheme. So it's been a really fast journey for me, but I think, like, I've really found what I'm meant to do. Right. And I think, like, having worked as a stage manager and actor, that's, that really, that mm. feeds into my process as a director. And I think my process... Do you mean, like, my rehearsal process? Yeah, process just okay. kind of... Yeah. Um, so, for me, I, I love character work, I love background work, I love us thinking about the world. Um, so, uh, I very much go... Uh, see it as a collaboration mm. me I can have my vision of what I want it to be and then of course you meet your designer your sound designer your lighting designer your movement director they all have ideas you, you cast it your actors bring something brilliant into the room as well so it's about you know for me it's a real sort of collaboration but then also being the voice to go I hear that but this is what we're going to do yeah. like thank you for your offers these are the ones we're going to go with and, you know, I don't always get it right, but, you know, that's what you have two or three previews for, isn't it, before you press yeah. So you can keep making those changes, uh, taking bits out, adding stuff in. Um, and also at the heart of my work is the idea of making it as creatively accessible as I possibly yeah. can, whether that's through captioning, signing, integrated audio description or headsets. Um, yeah, that's... And my, my process, you know... I haven't read loads of books, although I've got loads of books behind me on my bookshelf. Um, and I've not been able to see loads of work because not all theatres are that accessible. No. But I'd say, I think being at the Royal Exchange for a year and a half and assisting lots of different directors, you realise that there's no one way of doing it. Do you take bits and bobs from every director you assist and add that to your own kind of bag? Yeah, I think you have your own toolkit, don't you? And you're like, okay, well, for this... Because also you don't know, like, you can audition actors, but you don't know till you're sat in a room with actors, like, where they're at. No. Like, are they are they an actor that likes uniting and actioning? Or are they an actor that likes getting up on their feet and being on their feet straight away? So you kind of, you have to find that balance with those people in the room and in what way do they work? I guess that, that can vary from day to day as well, I suppose. Yeah, completely. And what also, what mood am I in as a director? Mm. Um, and I did I did two-week uh, National Theatre Directors course last year, which was brilliant. And you got to spend time with Katie Mitchell, the theatre director, and she taught you through her practice. And, yeah. you know, reading her book and, and yeah... I think you just realise, like, there is no one way. And actually, what there is, it's, it's you as a person. It's you, your your authenticity. And that's mm. what matters most in that rehearsal room. And, and you said you, um, you became a resident assistant director at the Manchester Royal Exchange in... 2017. I was wondering whether you can talk a little bit about that experience 
Uh, I'm particularly experienced um, assisting the, on the Grey Eye and Manchester Early Exchange co-production of Bernardo Alba. Yeah, so with House of Bernardo Alba, um, so I assisted Jenny, it was a co-pro, which was brilliant uh, to have Grey Eye and the Royal Exchange as a, you know, co-producing. Um, um, it introduced me to the city of Manchester and I, I remember as well as soon as I walked into the Royal Exchange Theatre and saw that auditorium and it being in the round and it's on three levels um, have you ever been? no yeah. never I watched oh, I watched the live stream of uh, all the streams I put up on YouTube it looks fantastic I, yeah it's amazing like uh, is it something like no one is ever further than like six or nine meters from the stage it's all really well thought out it's this fantastic thing that we call the module it looks like a tardis has just landed in the middle of like this grand victorian building um and it's just it is epic and and I think the fact that like it was an integrated cast it had more disabled actors in it than non-disabled actors and working with Joe Clifford, the writer, um, I was working closely with Joe on thinking about how we can get audio description into the script so people mm. wouldn't have to use headsets. And it's it was just it was it was brilliant. And I that's where I fell in love with the Royal Exchange. So then, um, and I got to know Sarah Frankham, who was artistic director at the time. And so when I saw the advert for resident assistant director on the RTYDS website. There were three theatres. There were Sheffield theatres. Um, oh, man, mine's gone blank. Where was it? The Birmingham Rep and the Royal Exchange. And I thought, I'm going to go for this. Like, I didn't think mm. I had enough experience. But I was like, no, come on, try it. Mm. And, uh, I, yeah, I got... Mm. We, when you get through to your third, your final round, you have to say which one of the theatres you would like to be at. And I really wanted the Royal Exchange. I didn't put it as number one. Like, because I thought if I put it at number one, I want to jinx it. <laughs> really? So I just put a big bracket around all of them and went, I honestly do oh. not mind. Um, and then I had to go back to London that afternoon to get back into the last bit of rehearsals for Mosquitoes. Yeah. And literally, uh, I finished rehearsals and I'd gone out for a little drink with the actors after and I was wheeling back to my digs and my phone went and it was Sue Emma's from RTYDS and she was like, congratulations, Manchester want you. And I was like, I'm sorry, wow. what? She went, Manchester Royal Exchange want you. I went, sorry, Sue, did you say Manchester? And she was like, yeah. I went, Wah! and like, just like, yeah, cheered down the phone. Were you expecting to get Birmingham up or how? What I was... wasn't expecting to get any of them, to be fair. Um, but yeah, so to get the Royal Exchange was just like, yeah, amazing. And then, yeah, and then I finished Mosquitoes at the end of September, beginning of October, and I moved up to Manchester two weeks later. And I have, and this is where I've been. And you. And and what was it like working with Jenny Seeley, particularly on that production of Bernardo Alba? It was it's it's great. Assisting Jenny is fantastic. You learn so much. You learn how to balance the room between all the different actors' access requirements. How you know how are you gonna put 
listening to the show, how you can make it accessible. Um, Jenny is a fan, can see things so visually. It's just brilliant. I've learned a lot about Jenny, about um, sort of uh, how you use the stage uh, visually, yeah. spacing of people, uh, minimal set, uh, which is a big key at the Royal Exchange as well. Um, I've also learned how to wear my pajamas in the rehearsal room because that's what Jenny Seeley is renowned for. Uh, we had matching pajamas when we did Blood Wedding. She bought me a Amazing. pair of pajamas for my birthday. Um, I didn't quite wear them into the rehearsal room, but we shared a flat, so we would like have a sofa each, watch telly, and I'd check pajamas. Um, but yeah, you I, and I think with Jenny, I've learned like a uh, rehearsal room is chaotic. And that's okay for it to be chaotic. It's about you being the person to be able to pull that focus and steer everybody in the direction they need to go. And yeah. and also, like, Jenny's very generous with her actors of how much she can allow them to bring into the space. Um, so, yeah, I've learnt loads from Jenny. Um, so you're currently the associate director of Grey Eye Company. Uh, can you just talk a bit about what that role involves? Yeah, so associate director at Grey Eye. Uh, I'm head of the new writing department, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been there 18 months now. And um, so my work is feeding into the general running of the company, uh, feeding into artistic programming meetings. I also do some work with the ensemble, which are uh, young disabled actors in training. Um, I do. I, I I get given a certain budget. I get to think about how I want to spend that money, and my priority is working with writers. Uh, and developing uh, new plays, you know, and I'm really keen to push disabled narratives centre stage Mm -hmm. uh, and allow our stories to come through, our voices to be there, uh, rather than feel like our stories are told from a non-disabled perspective. It's about, no, let's let's take ownership of these. I'm really keen to, like, rip up the book on dramaturgy and go, no, this is what disability dramaturgy is all about. Um... So, can you, I, I can work... you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, so I I think the way we tell stories is very white, non-disabled, Eurocentric. And I think there's something where actually we don't have to be stuck in that way of telling stories. And I think of my life as a disabled person and I'm like, I have an inciting incident every day of my life. You know, like yeah. every barrier is an inciting incident, isn't it? Because it always sparks something off. Um, so I just think like there we shouldn't get too caught up on that if that makes sense and just like going and, and actually part of telling a story is like what is the contract we have with the audience what are we asking the audience to come with what are we going to give them and I think yeah. it can be much more than come into this lovely cosy dark space you might have an uncomfortable theatre seat uh, I think there's more to it and I think there's more exciting ways we can use the audience with our work okay. yeah, and you know an audience at the moment their contract is see some disabled actors on stage and tilt their heads and go ah or think it's a relaxed performance and it's like no 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 come on let's unpick this a bit let's let's tear up the theatre rule book let's challenge what we've got and think about new and exciting ways that we can make work and, and why is it you... and why is it still considered 
surprising or progressive to see someone like Ruth Midley in a play. You know, in, in why Yeah, completely. And and also like, you know, how how would you to tell those stories like you know, does the length of a scene represent the length of pain? You, I don't know, I think there's so much in That's it that we can just as as theatre makers, writers, directors, we need to be not afraid of pushing those boundaries and allowing our stories to come through. So that's that's part of my job at Grey Eye is I'm working with, uh, we've had six years of a programme called Right to Play, mm-hmm. but each year they were uh, five writers, new writers, so now we've got 30 of the alumni writers. Um, my job, well, my role is to um, help them establish their careers and see yeah. what opportunities we can make. So conversations of like the Royal Court in London, Royal Exchange, yeah. uh, Theatre Royal Plymouth, about, you know, can you co-commissions, residencies, all of that. And coming up with a, a an interesting programme of work for those writers from masterclasses to come and have a chat coffee morning with us on Zoom and do some writing. Yeah. So it's really varied. And one of my things when I started I was really keen that I don't know about you but like uh rehearse readings like fringe theatre or rehearse yeah. reading scratch nights are usually in really inaccessible venues because they're fringe venues have they don't you, have access have you been to the other room in Cardiff yeah yeah how, how do you find that in terms of access it's quite small, isn't it? And mm. I can't remember there being great access to get on stage because no. there's a there's a step up, isn't there? Exactly, and that's I was going to say in terms of what my knowledge of Finchley is, that's facing Cardiff, as you say, yeah. there's a step on stage, which means availability or or their accessibility is limited or it could be limited, yeah. which is a massive problem. But yeah. Go on. Or, it, yeah, and I just think like somewhere like that is where people go. You can put on a show, you know, get the space, put on a show, mm. and it's how you learn. It's how where you learn to fail, isn't it? Mm. As a maker, like okay, Definitely. I did this play, mm, that didn't quite land. Why was that? And that gives you that chance to, you know, not only make a successful show maybe, but also to go, oh yeah, I failed. And where did I fail, and how do I come back better? What's my learning process throughout that? And if you haven't got those opportunities, then we're already years behind our non-disabled peers. And it's, so, be- it's better to fail in front of 25 people than getting commissioned from uh, 200 theatre and failing them. And how yeah. does that affect your career? As Ex- exactly. And also, like, just having that opportunity to hone your craft a little bit. Yeah. Um. And it, and kind of in front of a supportive audience, like Scratch Night's audiences know what they're, they're they're there for. So and also like very few of those have captions or you know audio description in. So I I was really keen that at Grey Eye we we start doing one. So that we did our first Scratch Night in February called Crips with Chips. So okay. we opened it out to our writers, uh, write ten fifteen minute piece. Me and my colleague Josh, who's our literary coordinator, we selected four pieces, got some actors together over two days, we rehearsed them, and we put it on at Grey Eye. And we also did a deal with the Greasy Spoon around the corner, who supplied all the chips. 
So you came, uh, you donated some money, you got a drink on arrival, and you got you got some chips in a little oh, pot. Great. And you you watched the the work, and it was all captioned, an audio description in it and stuff. And then we were due to have our next one in April, uh, but of course <sighs> the pandemic happened, which is why we've turned mm. some of it into the Crips Without Constraints program. So yeah, it's about really for me. My job at Grey Eye goes along with what Grey Eye does, is challenging those preconceptions yeah. and placing disabled creatives sort of centre stage. And, and how has that been affected by, you've touched on it briefly, how has that been affected by the coronavirus pandemic? And uh, in a wider sense, I guess, what impact do you think the pandemic is going to have on disabled artists more generally? Well, we, we've had to shut the Grey Eye office. Uh, I mean, we managed to get it open, I think, September and October. But, of course, it's shut now. Yeah. Um, so we've all been working from home most of the time. And that's fine, but it's you can't have those collaborative conversations. And also, like, just because we've all gone digital doesn't mean to say it's suddenly more accessible. You know, you need to think about the same access, whether you're online or in person. And sometimes online is even harder. Um, and, the, yeah, and the importance of the work is that we have to keep making work because we can't allow our voices to be forgotten. Uh, if we go quiet, then there's a chance the industry will just push us out. And we've mm. all had these panel discussions, haven't we? Let's be fair, over the last eight months, nine months, like, oh, it's all about resetting and restarting. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but come on. Is that seriously going to happen? Let's, you know, put your money where your mouth is now and prove to us that you've taken notice. Um, yeah. And and I think it's great. I keep making work in whatever capacity, whether it's a podcast or something on Zoom or whatever, that, or, you know, something on your website, because people are shielding as well. Mm. So who knows when we're going to be able to get back in spaces. Um so there's even more of that, you know, the whole movement around we shall not be removed. And that's about, you know, disabled artists going, we're not going anywhere. We are still here. You're not going to forget about us. Yeah. We're not, you're not going to, we're not going to allow you as an industry to go back 20, 30 years when there was even, you know, less access than what we have now. Do you think that could be used as an excuse in the future when theatres to reopen if people are considered vulnerable? Directors will not look at casting Potent people. Yeah, potentially. And I think, you know, there's a bigger question around, well, you know, how are you going to cast it? Who are you going to cast it? How are you going to make that piece of work? Mm. Can you make it with somebody there digitally? You know, how, what is that? And you, I think you can. Um, and you can have fun exploring that. Think outside. I think there's a bigger question, isn't there, about what, what do we actually mean by theatre? Is yeah. it about work and people rather than about it being a building? Because I think theatre is surviving outside of these buildings uh, more than what mm. we think we need these buildings for. Um, yeah, Gre you know, we'll keep going at Grey Eye, touch wood. As long as we've got funding, we'll keep going yeah. and making work in whatever capacity we possibly can. It's so important to have that output, to still have that output of work in this time. Um, um, the last thing, uh, actually, the, the, um, 
penultimate thing I'm going to ask you is what steps do you think the wider industry can take post-COVID to improve inclusivity and accessibility? But, like, I just feel we've been having this conversation for such a long time. Is there anything actually going to change? I know it's a bit of a defeatist point of view, but, like, is there anything actually going to change? I'm a couple of years older than you, aren't I, here? So, just, just a few. Um, um, so I, I didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, but, like, I think there's something in, like, hearing you say that, like, how many more conversations mm. do we have to have? And I know I've probably got 15, 20 years on you on those conversations. So, like, if you're feeling like that, imagine how I'm feeling. <laughs> Um, I think it's. I think there comes a point where I have to go. Just shut up talking about it and do it. And there yeah. have been some of those discussions where I have. Um, and how is the industry? I don't know. I don't know. I. I, mm-hmm. I think twenty twenty has proven to me I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> I can't. I can't predict anything is possible. Yeah. Um, I think there has been a, a, a progression with uh, actors that are being cast on those mm-hmm. stages uh, and in those plays. I would love to see now disabled playwrights really coming through and really pushing our stories there uh, and not being afraid and not feeling like they have to listen to a non-disabled person put their perspective on what our story should be. But also, it should be a wide range of disabled writers. It can't just be Jack or no Tom Wentworth. There needs to be a wide range of writers. No offence to Jack or Tom. No, they're Um, brilliant. They're brilliant, yeah, I'm not but saying that, that. But there has to be, you know, and that's that's part of my job where is to find those people and bring them through. Um, yeah, and it is, it is. It has to be, let's start looking at the writers now because the writers are going to mm. have the biggest influence on theatre, on TV, film, radio, whatever, because they can say, this is the person I want to cast for this role. They have to have this impairment. This is who I've written this for. Uh, and that is how we are going to make change. So, you know, you're a writer, no pressure, mm. but you've got to change it now. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's also about let's start holding people to account. Mm. So I've started doing it. Some of the big players out there, I have no qualms in sending an email and going, so what are you doing about this? Do you know about the social model of disability? Why not? I'll uh, meet you for a pint and I'll talk you through it. Um, it's, it you know, because if it's not going to change then from the top then you, you know it does your organization doesn't stand a chance is it about right. as well getting deaf and disabled members of boards of these theater yeah. companies at the higher kind of management level yeah oh. it's got it's the governance it's all of that it's to say deaf and disabled leaders uh yeah it's it's all of that it's definitely yeah it's it's across the board, isn't it? It's just not on stages, it's everywhere, even technicians, yeah. stage managers. Um, I think there is a point where we have to be careful because what I'm finding is, and I, you know, I think this is, this is great, people are doing this work, that a lot of non-disabled directors are now working with deaf and disabled actors, brilliant, and putting creative access into their work, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But please don't take ownership of that work. You have only been able to make that work due to having those people in your rehearsal spaces yeah. in your rooms. So don't turn around and expect me to give you a massive pat on the back that a non-disabled person has made a piece of work with disabled people. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really funny, isn't it? Like, suddenly creative access has become sexy because some non-disabled directors have decided to do it. And oh, how yeah. wonderful they are. And I'm like, oh, really? Some of us as disabled directors have been doing it for the last 40 years. But do we get a pat on the back? No, because we're just doing what we do mm. because we want to make work for the people we want to make the work for. So I think that, you know, it's really odd, isn't it? It's like the work of disabled people has only been validated because non-disabled people have started to get their work. But that happens so many times, you know. It's mm. it's so common. It's yeah. like we can't... can't Slow that path ourselves. We got to wait. Oh wait, yes. non-disabled people oh, can do it, Kim. Exactly. It's not validated. No, no. You, I mean, everyone knows that, right? Yeah, everyone so, knows it. Like, you know, disability is not fine until a non-disabled person uh, says it's okay. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just shush there, shush mm. there till the non-disabled person tells us we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh... Thank you so much for your time today. The last thing I want to ask you is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry, particularly at a time where it's difficult for emerging artists? I would say talk to people, speak to people, communicate with people. Uh, now is the time to send all those emails. Now is the time to organise to have a, a chat on uh, Zoom, Skype, whatever takes your fancy. Uh, people will have time to spare because we're not making loads of work, you know. Well, we are a bit busy. But see if, see if someone can just have that chat with you, give you some advice, uh, send people your plays. Um, um, make connections uh, you know see if there's people in your area that you know you could set up a script reading online whatever um, just keep at it it's really hard I'm not going to lie there's moments where I've thought oh I wish I stayed at being an educational psychologist um, but if you've really got that passion in your belly you've just got to follow it and, and keep going and I think the most important is to find those people around you uh, mm. so you can have those heated conversations uh, people that will kind of you know push you in the right direction but yeah it's going to be tough we all know it's going to be tough yeah. we're working in an industry that is dying on its ass um, so we've just got to keep strong keep getting our stories out there Keep banging our drums uh, and making the work because we are not going to go quietly. Thank you, Nikki. It's been fantastic. Sure, thank you. And thank I will. You for having me. Not my pleasure. <laughs> um, and I will see you on the next episode of In Lockdown World, where I'm not sure who my guest is going to be, but it might be Kate O'Reilly. She said she wants to come on. It's just about arranging a date. But I will see you in the next episode anyway. So for now, it's bye for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, 
please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.